Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook. I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. It wasn't exactly a thrilling weekend for Tottenham with their 0-0 draw at Vicarage Road on Saturday. Charlie, you were there. How was it? Um, well, the first half was pretty boring. Not a lot happened. Second half was eventful. Um, you know, Watford came out, had a couple of good chances, missed that penalty. Um, it's a poor penalty, but you know, if you're looking at positives, good save from Gazaniga. And then Spurs so nearly nicked it at the death. I mean, it really was millimetres. Could scarcely have been much closer. Lamella kind of prodding one on his our Sunday league style but you know no one would have minded if that had gone in uh, it just didn't and so yeah nil nil first away clean sheet in more than a year so the positives are stacking up really from uh, from Saturday no it was uh, pretty underwhelming it was the first away clean sheet since Cardiff on the f- yeah. 1st of January last year New is that right last I think? Year, yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, a pretty damning statistic, really, when you think about it. It was funny. I completely forgot, obviously, because it was such an underwhelming... Uh, and I tweeted before, being like, you know, looking for that first clean sheet. Completely forgot about that in the immediate aftermath. It didn't really... I mean, it was like a, it was a competent defensive performance. And obviously, you know, Gazaniga has done well to save a penalty. But it didn't feel like they came away from that game kind of celebrating the clean sheet. Not just because they dropped two points, but it didn't really feel like they had loads of defending to do. It kind of felt yeah. like they got, sort of stumbled into the clean sheet rather than really kind of had to dig deep and earn it. Well, also, yeah, because there was the missed pen and Watford did miss a couple of chances, yeah. didn't they, right at the start of the second yeah, half? Yeah, it, yeah. it wasn't a kind of backs-to-the-wall uh, job. But, yeah, you know, small steps. Were there any defensive performances that you thought were especially good or that Spurs can, can take any pride from? Uh, I mean... Tanganga was asked to play at left back, you know, obviously not a position he's really familiar with. I thought it, it was a pretty tricky afternoon for him against Saar, who is rapid and, you know, really dangerous. You know, I think you put that down in the he'll have learnt a lot from it category. I mean, category. He got card quite early in mm. the game, probably in the first 25 minutes. I mean, I, I was really worried for him yeah. because he's playing against someone who's a, like a decent player and rapid. Uh, out of position on his week of uh, you know his third game in the Premier League, second game in the Premier League, second, second game, game yeah. in the Premier League, yeah. and you just think, oh, this this <laughs> this might not go too well. But he, he was he was composed again, you yeah. know. He got over that and he I, did a decent job. I mean, he should, he should be happy with how he played, obviously, given he's it's the third position he's he's played in in what three matches now over the last ten days. Well, yeah, and he filled in at left back a little bit against Liverpool. Yeah, didn't exactly. He? So yeah. he played like three positions in just over a game. I mean, Aurier. I tweeted after about 20 minutes, I was like, if he gets out of this without a booking, I'd be absolutely stunned because De La Feu, I've had him on toast early on, but he um, he did get through that booking. So yeah, that's a, a small <laughs> positive as well. Actually, to his credit, Aurier, I thought, played played pretty well, actually. Yeah. I also think his crossings improved a lot. He yeah, put, he put I, yeah. in one really good cross. He was sat just in front, the first half, uh, his side was just in front of where I was sitting. I was watching him quite closely. Uh, and yeah, he, he, he looked composed and he, you know, I think he's improved quite he's, a bit. He's probably the player who's improved the most under Mourinho in the last two months I'd say I mean we haven't yeah I've always got this thing in the back of my mind and I think Charlie described it quite well in a piece he wrote early in the season which was that when you walk away from watching Aurier play well in a game it's always Aurier was actually not that bad yeah you're never like fully kind of confident enough to say he was good because there's always in the back of your mind this feeling that in the next game he's gonna you know go through the back of someone and give away a penalty and get himself sent off or whatever but this is this must be his most consistent run at Spurs, isn't it? In terms of, of playing started, well, probably, started yeah, well, and also playing well. Like yeah. actually, if you if you if we didn't have all that baggage with him, I think you know if he'd been a, a new signing under Mourinho, you'd probably be saying, yeah, this guy's a pretty good 
pretty good right back. I think he's been Spurs. This this sounds like a joke, but it isn't. He's been Spurs. <laughs> he's, he has been Spurs' best player this season. He's my Tottenham wow. player of the season. Uh, that feels like one of those statements that you make that sounds stupid, but then you go through the rest. That, of the it's actually not. I'm, I'm, not. I'm, I'm genuinely not taking the piss. Deli Ali for that spell. Mm. He had. I know not as consistent. It's a real kind of heights. purple patch, but he, yeah, he it was like a four game. Yeah. Like, that was like four games. Uh, I actually can't think of anyone else. Listeners, if you've got any any other ideas, please tweet us. I mean, we, Kane, actually, we actually can't come up with anyone. Kane just, he hasn't, by his standards, not been amazing, yeah, but he still scored quite, score quite a few goals. There was a time after about, um, certainly the first like two or three months of the season, where he was averaging more or less a goal a game. And a lot of them penalties. Yeah. But he did, he did his numbers stack up this year. Yeah, so I'd say maybe him. But obviously the expectations are so yeah. different. And also, you know, he's not going to be able to uh, enhance his claim <laughs> much between now and the end of the season, unfortunately. Although suspect- in every game it is more like, oh my God, we, we yeah. miss it so much. But- yeah, we should talk about strikers. Um, hoofing long balls to little Lucas Moura. Uh, how much longer can Spurs keep doing this? What uh, do you think? Uh, it is incredible that they found themselves in this situation. Uh, uh, to, to say Kane's injury is down to not having a backup striker is obviously really, really simplistic. But yeah. when he's, you know, it's a hamstring injury that he's picked up at the end of a run of two games a week, really intense period, uh, it, it suggests that that may have been a, a factor in it. Uh, and it's just, you know, this guy plays every minute of every game uh, until he's completely and utterly knackered. And it's just crazy that they're putting him in this situation year on year it's happened it's happened every season now for the last four seasons basically yeah. since that breakthrough year and you know Llorente last season I mean I was by no means a huge fan but ultimately when it came to the crunch he was part of like the biggest moments in Tottenham seasons in terms of those two Champions League knockout ties away from home where he scored the in no way contentious goal at Manchester City <laughs> Uh, and also was involved in like two of the knockdowns, I think, for two of the Lucas goals. Yeah, uh, Ajax. Winner, yeah exactly. So, you know, he played a role. I mean, I, I'm not sure you necessarily want him to be like a focal point in a team for half a season, but it would be better than what we've seen in the last couple of games. The reality of it is Spurs have scored, I think they're one of three teams in the 92 that haven't scored a goal in 2020. Yeah. And one well, of the I, others think he's, I think, yeah, they've only scored what, one league goal this calendar year, is that right? No, none. None, no, none. none. Oh, no, right, there's only three teams who haven't scored yeah, a single yeah. league goal. They haven't scored in their last three league games. I mean, it's pretty terrible. Yeah, yeah. It's funny when you think about Lorente. Like, if there's, but all of what you said is true. But if there is one manager in the world who yeah. wouldn't mind him as a focal point, sort of, he, he happens sort of to be the manager who is Tottenham, Hot, the man who is manager of Tottenham Hotspur. Well, I kind of joked when uh, when Kane got injured, didn't I? I think on our on our kind of internal messaging thing that. Uh, that you know they'd be on the phone to Llorente straight away, and then there has suddenly been this rumor <laughs> yeah, yeah. actually that may may well be something that happens. I mean, I, that message that leaked. Genuinely, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. I don't think. Like, no. clearly, he's he like, was Llorente was right. We've spoken about this a lot, but he was at like the upper level of a, of that kind of understudy player in that kind yeah. of Giroud sort of yeah. level. My my objection to that is that this idea that Spurs won't be able to sign a striker because no one's going to want to play second fiddle to Harry Kane. There have been so many teams down the years that have had players sat on the bench or they've rotated and it hasn't mm. mattered who their first choice is. You know, you know, you only have to look at Chelsea now. They've got Abraham uh, in the team every week and then they've got Giroud and Batshuayi and sure, it sounds like Giroud is going to go and Batshuayi is probably not particularly delighted to not be playing a lot. But they do have, they have had three strikers in the first half yeah. of the season. I, and the top side historically in the last decade, say, 
have always had those options. It's only really been Spurs that have just had one striker and just played him into the ground every single and time. And also Spurs are in a pretty like unique circumstance right now, which is their main guy's injured. There's only It's only for half a season. You'd think they would be a very attractive team to join on loan. If you yeah. were not playing for a good team... Uh, and Tottenham wanted you on loan, you'd think, yeah, you know, you might be able to get quite a lot of football over half a season. A bit like the deal where Chelsea got Higuain or when Chelsea got Pato mid-season, somebody not playing at a top team who won yeah. the games. That yeah. that sort of option, I think, should be doable for Tottenham. But also, if you're a player like that and you go to a club like Tottenham, you, you should be like backing yourself to get in the team, right? You should be backing yourself to make yourself undroppable, whether that's getting in the team ahead of Harry Kane or, you know, convincing the manager to change the system. You know, yeah. I mean, I don't. I, if it, top top footballers, those kind of names that you just mentioned. I mean, you know, they they surely wouldn't be thinking, oh well, Harry Kane's there, so I'm not going to have any chance. I know this was a thing I think that came up when they was it Morata, I think maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Pochettino like tried to sign Morata. I can't remember which summer it was. It might be 2017. Must, must be when he went to Chelsea. When he joined Chelsea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the the sweet spot really is if you can get someone in. I think like Son, like Son, who can play as a striker but can also play as a wide forward. So it wouldn't yeah. be an either or. I mean, Liverpool, I've mentioned before, I think they've done it really well. Someone like Origi is a great yeah, level yeah. Uh, second striker. Origi would be perfect because also they they would have to be, it would have to be somebody who's like sufficiently big that they could hit long balls to. Yeah. And Son maybe isn't so much a guy for the long balls, but no. Origi would be perfect. I mean, there'll be loads of players that fit that profile. You know, someone who's like big, strong, quick, can finish a little bit, but could also play out wide. You know, someone versatile. That's that's what you need for the squad anyway, at any moment, not just when Harry Kane is injured. Yeah, there are ultimately quite a lot of footballers out there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it just it kind of winds me up sometimes when clubs are when clubs say they can't find anyone in the market when it's such a specific situation like this where they desperately need almost almost literally any the, player, yeah. like almost literally anyone will do. Will be any will be better than the current situation, which strikes me as being completely untenable. What about the challenge of clubs knowing that they're so desperate and then just upping their asking price and making it awkward? That I mean, that's way. a reality, but that is kind of a, that is a problem of Spurs eye making, isn't it? I mean, this sure. has been a, this has been an issue for a few years. It's not it's not a new thing. This isn't the first time they've been in this situation. It might be the first time it's come in a transfer window and they've known Kane is going to be out for four months or longer. But it's not the first time they found themselves looking at their squad and thinking, "Oh, we need to we need to find a way of playing without Harry Kane, and we don't have another recognised striker of the same profile to pick." But do you think there is a point at which you have to just accept that we're in this mess, and yeah, we might just have to pay a bit more than what we should? Because for the sort of the fact that it could mean the difference between Champions League, so it's a bit of a false economy to say we're not going to pay over the odds for insert name of middling striker. Uh, I think so, but I also think that they. You know, they might sell Christian Eriksen at the end of the window for the best part of £20 million. Let's not forget that towards the end of the summer, they were in the hunt to, to get Dybala for big money, Bruno Fernandes for big money, neither of those came up. They must be able to afford a, They must be able to afford some form of striker deal, even if it isn't a big money permanent move. Yeah, I, no, I, I don't disagree with that. I think, it, I think it's the value for money thing that is, um, <clears throat> you know, the big thing for Levy. And... The idea of paying more than what you should, knowingly paying more than what you should for a player, I think is just anathema to the way he's run that for, club. For the record, I, I think they did spend like upwards of twelve, kind of somewhere between twelve and fifteen million pounds on Lorente when he signed, yeah. right? It's something like that. That's back. because they must yeah. have thought that's what he was worth. I think that the challenge that they have at the moment is they know every club is trying to milk them for everything they're worth because every club knows like you are so desperate for a striker. Like it's it's I, a seller's market. Yeah, I, I agree with that to an extent, but I think if you're a Premier League club going to Europe. 
with that Premier League TV money. I think you probably find yourself in that situation more or less in every single window for every single player you try and sign, I would have thought. I mean, I'm sure it makes a difference. And, and in January, you know, that applies even more, obviously, because you know, any any club trying to sign any player in January is desperate. It's, it is a trans. I think it's Gary Neville who said this before, I think. The, ga- the January window is like a transfer window for badly run clubs, basically. The, yeah, completely. You know, if, you, if you're dashing around trying to do loads of business in January, it kind of means, you know, you've made big mistakes in the summer. Completely. Yeah, and you're, and you're necessarily buying players who aren't really wanted at their clubs. Yeah. And, and, the you know, you look at Tottenham... Their January activity, so you know the last five years, brought in Deli Ali in 2015 and loaned him straight back, and that was an exceptional case. Yeah. 2018, they bought they bought Lucas Moura. That's it. I mean, they just have not bought players in January. It's not a time when they've wanted to do business. So, so I just think it's such an interesting dynamic now that they're kind of being forced into do something they really ideally would rather not do. I'm, I'm going to cling to my memories of Mido signing on on deadline yes, day yeah. uh, in 20 uh, 2004 2000, uh, 2005. Yeah, January 2005. When Andy Reid and Michael Dawson also signed, I believe, that's the kind of that's the kind of window we need. Yeah, yeah. So that would be like what Joe Lolly. Who would be the me- I don't know who, who would be the Mido of this window? <laughs> I can't even think. Ooh, that's a good question. A kind of exciting someone who had promised so much. Mido online exciting. was so good. Me, I, I absolutely loved me. I have no idea how he got onto this, but Mido online, his debut was amazing. Yeah. Game against Portsmouth, he plays up front with Jermaine Defoe, and no one really knows that much about him. You know, he's come online from Rome, or I think he'd been for six months and it hadn't worked out because, you know, he's Mido. Uh, and he does this amazing flick. To, he, like, the ball comes to him in the air and he does this, like, kind of flick with his ankle through to Defoe and Defoe just has no idea what's coming. <laughs> he's just completely, like, bamboozled by it. It's amazing. That's it, the kind of player they yeah. need to sign. <laughs> well, also, Someone that's going to make it exciting. I remember as well, a few months after Reed and Dawson came in, it was against Villa at White Hart Lane I think Spurs won 5-1 and Reed scored an absolute yeah, screamer yeah, that was his only goal I think for Spurs. Yeah. <laughs> but you know it was like I remember that leaving that and everyone was like oh my god this guy's going to be incredible yeah I'll always my main memory of Mido in a January transfer window is not that one it's the January transfer window 2007 where Mido was about to join Manchester City for four million pounds, and this was Stuart Pearce's city. Like re- 2006-7, City was one of the worst City teams in, in modern memory. Uh, I think they scored ten goals in the league oh, all yeah, season. That's right, yeah. Didn't score at home in the league after Christmas. Um, and City had a deal lined up for Mido. I think it was four million, maybe with Bernardo Carradi going the other way. And then right at the last minute, at like midnight on the 31st of January, Martin Yol pulled the plug. And so City couldn't. City didn't sign Mido, and this was a disaster. And Spurs didn't get Karate. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I mean, City felt story, that this yeah. great counterfactual. Yeah, City thought that this meant they would go down, but in fact, it didn't because it meant that they could subsequently sign the free agent Emil Mpenza, who scored the crucial goals at Middlesbrough and Newcastle United away, which kept City up. Which um, so City, which, in, I, which in turn, I, sorry, I, I, led to Tax and Shinawatra buying the club in the summer of 2007, appointing Sven Juran Eriksson, which in turn led to Abu Dhabi buying the club <laughs> in the summer of 2008, and everything that has happened subsequently. So, and the thing is, if if Martin Yol had authorised that transfer, and Mido had gone to City, but Mido had been less successful than Emil and Penza proved to be in the spring of 2007 for Manchester City. It might well be that City would never have got bought by Abu Dhabi. Pep Guardiola, Kevin De Bruyne, Raheem Sterling, Sergio Aguero, David Silva would all now be working for different employers. And the modern history of football would be very 
different. A lot of these. And so, sorry, um, sorry to come back to Yeah, and so I think the meat, you know, Mido is important. Should not yeah. be underestimated. Yeah. Mido is in that sense. It's one of those like um, the Mido effect. Yeah, the Mido effect. If a what? butterfly flaps its wing somewhere, then you get an earthquake on the That's other side the name of the world. Of the pod, yeah. yeah, the Mido effect. If Mido flicks his hair in a different direction. Yeah, a great, a greatly universe. consequential man in the in the history of football. Mido. Was, was, was that around the same time as Stuart Pearce coined the word management ship? Which I Man- thought was I such know. a great word. It was, under my management ship. I just it, thought it, was it was the same brilliant. time that Stuart Pierce brought a like a beanie baby toy oh, yeah. into the dugout, it was kids, wasn't it? from which I think it was given to him by his daughter as a good luck charm. Uh, and then the idea being that like City had somehow won a game in the middle of that season. This was the beanie baby had been lucky, and so he kept in the dugout. And then I think their next game they got battered by someone. <laughs> Uh, and so it went away. But anyway, this is not a Manchester City podcast. No, not this is not a Manchester City. The, 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 the best Mido pod story is uh, the time he threw scissors at Zlatan Ibrahimovic Ajax. Oh wow! I they had a big know row at a training ground, and then uh, he threw scissors at Zlatan. And they're good friends now. They got him really well. Yeah. But, yeah. There was I mean, an amazing Ajax team. Was nuts, wasn't it? That was like those two: Schneider, Rafael Van der Vaart, yeah. um, just, just to tie it back to Spurs again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a really good interview with Mido. Recently, it was in the guard. So I've just literally just found up my laptop. Stu- <laughs> our colleague, our colleague, Stu- honestly, this is worth it. So our colleague Stu James uh, at the Athletic. This was something he did at the Guardian uh, eighteen months ago. An interview with Mido about his weight loss. Um, it's really, really good. And like Mido's health. So Mido had like kind of unhealthy lifestyle, and it's about how he got back in shape. And it's really, really interesting talking about how Mido kind of struggled to deal with like post football life. So if you're inter- if you are interested in Mido, I would recommend <laughs> Stu James interview. Anyway, back to Tottenham. Um, you can tell it was a boring game, can't you? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just want to say one more thing about this game. Uh, so I was watching this game at home, and I thought, wow, this is really, really, really bad. And then I thought. About three years ago, Tottenham went to Vicarage Road and absolutely destroyed Watford. They was I, I looked up; it was on New Year's Day, twenty seventeen, so almost yeah. exactly three years ago, right at the peak of like Pochettino's powers. Um, Kane scored twice, Delhi scored twice. They ran. I think Trippier. I remember Trippier, Trippier got, being really. Yeah. That was one of the Trippier first. Trippier had games. an amazing record against Watford for like. Yeah, that was in like the time where. Uh, that was just before was, like Trippier supplanted Walker yeah. because Walker had yeah. asked to leave Tottenham. Um, and I just thought, wow, Spurs are so much worse than they used to be. So much worse. Is that? Am I, I, you only I, just realised. No, no. It was like a. It was a, a moment of clarity. Um, is it on? Are we just? Are we being unfair? Is that true? Or? Yeah, I mean that that season. I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. 2016-17 was like the the peak of Pochettino Spurs and. Having said that Aurier played well, I think the, the biggest difference is probably that the fullbacks in that team were absolutely superb. Rose and Walker, they're absolutely brilliant. I've actually Trippier played in that game, as you said. Uh, they just had, they just gave that team so much that everything else kind of fell into place beyond that. Yeah. And I mean, probably having the option of Trippier to play, and, and there was this big thing that Pochettino wouldn't play the fullbacks in two games in a week, if you remember. Yeah. There was a lot of rotation of fullback, which I think kind of. Confused We'd, people, I think. Yeah, well. and I think Walker wasn't happy because Walker wanted to play twice a week, every game, and famously for the Champions League games in that season, he would Pochettino would always rotate. Yeah. So Walker, I think, didn't play in the big games against Monaco. Yeah. Uh, in the group stage, and Trippi would play instead. And you know, it wasn't popular at the time, but looking at the results and performances over 2016-17, you say that 
Pochettino's approach to the fullbacks was vindicated because he could get so much physical intensity from yeah. Rose and Davis on the one side or Walker and Trippier on the other. What was really cool about that, I always thought as well, was that they were pretty similar stylistically, certainly like Trippier and Walker. And and you think about normally you rotate between like a plan A and a plan B. That was more or less the same plan. It was, yeah. So it meant you could play in the same sort of way. It just meant, as you say, you could get so much more out of them physically. And the contrast with now, as you say, James, like I think that's really bang on the, that that does sort of uh, kind of symbolise how much Spurs have declined. And I saw Dan Kilpatrick at the Standard, he tweeted that, I think Spurs have played six different players at right back and five at left back this season, yeah. just to underline the fact that it's been a bit of a mess. It's finding their way. And, and a player going back to then as well, January 2017, that Watford win that Jack talks about, that was when Danny Rose suffered his bad knee injury. And, you know, that was my, you know, my piece on the weekend looking at him. You know, he's a player who in that three years has, has suffered arguably more than any of the other Tottenham players you know if you think where they were then to where they are now uh, and you know one former coach was saying how he, you know he doesn't think Rose has really been the same since and, yeah. and I felt that was a sad kind of totally, side note yeah. yeah you've scooped me on my segue but, um, <laughs> but we should yeah, just that- say that Mido had no uh, impact on that injury by the way <laughs> well he may have done um, but he yeah so that that's a great point from Charlie uh, Rose's injury came 31st of January 2017, the 0-0 draw at Sunderland. And I think I think it's it's probably fair to say he hasn't quite been the same player since. Like Ro, Rose was phenomenal in the first half of that season, 16-17. He had so much speed and energy and he was so explosive. And him and Walker really pinned teams back. And teams really couldn't... The amazing thing about that team, I think more than anything else, was their physicality. Like teams, yeah. just, teams could not cope with Tottenham's physicality. Um and Rose has, you know, Rose hasn't been terrible since then. He was fantastic. I think the second half of last season, mm. the Champions League run, he's clearly got a lot. He's got a lot of skills, you know, technically, leadership, positioning, but he's not quite had that same explosiveness, I think, that he had back then. The other, the other thing that happened off the back of the injury is that once he came back, he gave the interview with the Sun over the summer before the start of the season. Yeah, it was when he was and still that, out. Pardon? It was when he was still yeah, out. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was over the summer, wasn't it? Um, and he kind of didn't really get into the team that much in the first half of that season. Uh, I think one of the first games he played was in the Bernabeu when he came on and played like as a defensive midfielder. That was the first twenty game minutes back. of the game. Yeah, in, so, in the October. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's the that's one of the ways the reasons why it's so surprising that he's still there is that obviously the twenty seventeen interview with the Sun was an attempt to get out of the club and it was he very nearly went to Chelsea at the very end of that window for for about fifty five million pounds. Uh, summer 2018, Tottenham tried very hard to sell him. He was on the kind of the list of players that Tottenham failed to sell. Uh, nearly went to PSG on loan, nearly went to Schalke on loan, but neither of that happened. 20, summer 2019, he nearly went to Watford, but that didn't happen. So he's had like three consecutive summers of nearly leaving the club. Yeah. And it's only because of a slightly unusual combination of circumstances that he's still here. And so he's left in this kind of strange, strange position where I don't think the club especially want him. I'm not sure he especially wants to be there. And yet, because they haven't been able to find a move for him, he's still kind of at Tottenham for it's the so, last year so and a half bleak, of his though, career. It's so isn't it? That like, you know, a player who's like made a really big contribution to the football club over over like a 10-year period now, really, if you go back to that goal against Arsenal, which is 10 years ago this April, to, for, to kind of be like lingering like this, you know, seemingly, you know, he says he wants to see out his contracts and, and remain at the club until the end of next season, but clearly the club aren't going to want that to happen. But and at the same time, you know, 
PSG or Chelsea or whoever aren't going to be interested in signing him now as they would have been uh, two or three years ago. And now he's kind of left in this limbo where the clubs that are actually going to be interested in signing him probably won't really be of much interest to him. Completely, this is it. And, and so the piece I did on the weekend was off the back of the fact that, you know, Mourinho said he was injured and that was why he wasn't in the matchday squad. Uh, I was told then that he was fit. So it was, you know, a bit of confusion. The impression seemed to be that he hadn't been selected and you think Davis is out already uh, and so he's not getting in a matchday squad when the first choice left back is out and yeah that kind of spells trouble for him and as you say James in the piece I talked about the fact it does it does just feel like quite a sad petering out of, of what's been a really brilliant career I think he joined the club 13 years ago as you say a decade uh, in April since that debut Premier League debut goal against Arsenal and there's been a lot made of Ericsson and the kind of sadness around his departure and I think you know the same arguably more so of Rose and and that failure to sell players at the time when they should have been is you know probably the biggest failure of that not capitalising on where they were under Pochettino. I, I think that might be a thing that's caught up with the club a little bit this season I think we might have talked about that before but that, that, that has been a thing that they've, they've tried to move players on at the right time for the club and quite often those players haven't left and then they've kind of been left hanging around and yeah. m- maybe not players as high profile as Rose, like first choice players, but players who are kind of on the fringes who they try to get rid of and then suddenly you get two months into the season and now you're kind of turning them to them, turning to them when someone gets injured or suspended or whatever and you're saying, actually, we told you we didn't want you over the summer, but now can you come and play these next four matches? I think that was quite a big problem towards the end of the Pochettino era yeah. is that basically half the squad knew that Pochettino had wanted to sell them at various points in the last year or two and you can't given that Pochettino's whole management style was reliant on extreme loyalty and commitment from his players that obviously starts to wear off when players agents all know that the club have been shopping the players around Um, looking forward Spurs have got Norwich City at home on Wednesday night and then Southampton away in the FA Cup on Saturday which is a bigger game? I would say Southampton probably in the FA Cup. I mean, that, you know, Champions League isn't isn't out of the question um, and such a bizarre league with Chelsea still dropping points. You know, how it's still, how top four is still an option is kind of crazy given the problems Spurs have had. Um, but yeah, FA, FA Cup run feels really big this season, I think. The chance to win something would, would completely transform this season, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge game. Um it feels a little bit, you know, like, kind of like going back like four or five years to the pre-Champions League days where the FA Cup was like a really important part of the season, um, having maybe been put on the back burner a little bit. Ironically, you know, like, because they've had good players, they've managed to go quite deep in the competition before uh, losing semi-finals, as they've done a couple of times. Um, but I, it's probably the one way, the one realistic way to salvage a season now is to win that. Uh, but Southampton until Saturday have been in really good form over the last six weeks or so they've really picked up they've looked like like the intensity that Hassan Hurtel has been looking for has finally kind of appeared and Ings has been scoring loads of goals as Spurs found out on New Year's Day that's going to be a really tough game and also Saints are in that position of looking pretty much safe from relegation and therefore having basically being able to put all of their energy into this game yeah exactly whereas with Spurs is always like half a mind on fourth place half a mind on Leipzig um, and that means you want. I mean, I'm sure Mourinho will pick a really strong yeah. team. Is there anyone else we expect to see? Do you think we might see Jetson Fernandez or Danny Rose or? Yeah, Jetson would be 
uh, that that would be an obvious time in a way. Although, as you say, because the FA Cup has more importance than it does before, it becomes less experimental. Sessegnon, I would have thought, would play then as well. Yeah, he's played. Uh, he played both Middlesbrough games, didn't he? Um, I mean, the, the only thing with Norwich, it, it becomes a big game if if they were to lose that. Yeah. Then yeah. then you're thinking, <laughs> wow, like that is. I think so far. There have been a lot. There have been quite a few disappointing results and disappointing performances, but there hasn't been a, like a mind-blowingly bad or mind-blowingly good result. I think that that would be. Charlie, you wrote a really interesting piece last week with former Tottenham goalkeeper Espen Bardson. How was he? He, he was clearly very talented. He was at Spurs. He went there as an 18-year-old um, in 96. Played quite a bit first half of the 98-99 season under Christian Gross. Though, as he said in the interview, it was actually Alan Sugar, who, who was the chairman then, who said to him, like, do you want to be in the team? And he kind of thought he was joking. And then, lo and behold, a few days later, he was in the team and kept his place for that season. Uh, so, really talented. Um, but he, I was kind of asking him, you know, why someone with your ability did it not quite work out and he said he lacked what he calls the kind of Muhammad Ali I am the greatest attitude that he says to be a top level goalkeeper in particular you really need um, and he cited Peter Schmeichel as an example and he said this was not first hand but what he'd heard was that Schmeichel could never admit he'd made a mistake to the point where he genuinely believed he had never made a mistake and Bardson was like Obviously, that's not the sort of quality you'd look for in a friend or a colleague in an office or something, but you kind of need that um, to, to make it as a top-class goalkeeper, to just be able to shrug off the fact you have just chucked one in in the last minute and lost and be like, yeah, it wasn't my fault. And I just think it ties into the broader picture of what it is that makes an elite-level sportsman. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you know we we champion a lot of qualities that in real life you would be like, that's not the sort of person I really want to hang out, hang out with. You know, you look at Olympic montages and it's this rower would get up at 4am every day and wouldn't see his family. And you're like, wow, what a legend. And you're also like, mm, is that that great a quality? Like, <laughs> um, but that's kind of what we're told. Um, but so, yeah, he, he just came across more as a, a guy you would like to hang out with. Probably had a lot more balance than a lot of sports people. It's too normal to make it. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. Like, I do think there is something in that. And I, and I put that to him. I was like, is, is that fair? He's like, well, no, you know, there are some who are. But I think to make it, you can't have balance in your life. You yeah. just can't. Like, you have to be 100% tunnel vision and almost, like, switch off the other parts of your brain. Like, I remember Malcolm Gladwell, the philosopher, thinker. He, he was a really promising track runner. And he said he was basically faced with that choice and he realized that if he wanted to go down the running route he would have to switch off everything else and he wasn't really prepared to do that um so yeah just really interesting to kind of get that insight of you know it's like how you imagine what you would be like as a sportsman a little bit because he even said things like yeah it's tough because you'd want to make plans but then you'd know that an extra training session or something might be called in you know things you never think about the reality of it because for most of us we're just like but you're getting paid loads to play football but that's not for everyone it's interesting isn't it because he had this kind of battle with Ian Walker for the for the goalkeeper shirt and there was a spell where he was kind of they were kind of flitting in and out of a team and then there was a bit as you mentioned where Gross kind of had him as first choice for like half a season and then George Graham came in and brought back Ian Walker and you just wonder whether had he kind of remained his third choice at first choice in that point, whether he maybe would have kind of seen the light and continued to to play and kind of discovered 
Like, yeah, a, a level of passion that he presumably didn't really have before. Complete. That's what he says. It's like it's a bit chicken and egg because once he then wasn't getting regular game time, he kind of entered this like negative feedback loop where he was like, yeah. "I'm not really enjoying this that much." So looked more into other stuff. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, he, you know, he said, "Look, the life of football is brilliant if you're like playing a lot for a good team. It becomes less so." when you're out the team and, and it does just become more of like any other job. What's weird is that he's he's 42 now. So, like, I mean, it's not like, I mean, you know, he'd be a very old goalkeeper if he was playing. He'd be like third choice at Fulham or something or whatever. But I mean, it's not like inconceivable no. that a 42-year-old would still be kind of knocking around. Completely. Do you have good memories of him as a player? Yeah, kind of vaguely. I mean, I was quite young when he was playing. There's, there's definitely a, a save against... Bolton that uh, that's mentioned in the piece actually that uh, is always on Premier League years and that he says what, what is the thing he says that like people always come up to him and see and yeah. say oh yeah you made this amazing save that's on Premier League years which you know anyone under sort of 25 <laughs> yeah. that, that's going to be pretty much their only exposure to like the 97-98 season probably he was saying as well how he would play in like five-a-side matches at his work once he'd retired. And I just love the image of them playing against another company and you turn up and you realise the opposition keeper used to play in the Premier League. You just be like, oh. I feel like if you're going to have a former Premier League player in a five-a-side team, you're probably not going to want it to be a keeper. Yeah. I feel like you're not maxing out on the bonus there. Yeah, true. Although like... Yeah, that you know when you've got when you're up against the keeper, you just know you yeah. can't score against. It's I, also so demoralising. Massive he's as well. Huge. Right? Yeah. He's like six five and like yeah, well built. Like that would be an intimidating keeper. And he now works for a hedge fund. He's now uh, does his own thing. He's a private investor, um, investing in lots of different things like property, stocks. Um, so yeah, just you know a very different kind of interview. It's always interesting to meet former footballers who have jobs outside of football. I think for. But I think it's more common for that generation of players who played in the nineties yeah. because they didn't make so much money that it's they like could the just cusp, coast. Isn't it? Um, we were talking before we came on air about other players we could remember, Tottenham players who had jobs outside of football. So Rule Fox is a personal trainer, yeah. I believe, in but, East Anglia. Yeah, but I can't think. Mickey of, Hazard, the cabbie. Have we got any others? I can't think yeah, of any other, good, not, other good ones. I mean, I know uh, this is a slightly different thing, but Rory Allen, who was like a centre oh, forward yeah. who came through the youth team. Uh, quit football he went to Portsmouth um, I, I think maybe it's a similar sort of story it didn't quite work out and, and he retired from football at like like halfway through a season to go and watch like an Astros tour yeah. in Australia like, oh, in like 2002 maybe wasn't he spotted at the Ashes I, I wasn't sure if, was it known he'd retired no, I, think I, he, I, I think he'd retired and, and it was like, oh, okay. it was like above board in, like, in my head like, he was yeah. outed as being like oh my god no, that's I don't, right. I don't think it was quite as bad as that but yeah he like headed to Australia and watched a load of cricket and then like yeah, I, I don't. I think he might work in the city or something as well. Yeah, now. amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. I really enjoyed reading Charlie's interview with Esmond Bardson. Um, if you want to read it, you can on theathletic.com. If you're not already a subscriber, you can get forty percent off with our promo code SpursPod. Uh, we have a series of new podcasts coming soon from the Athletic, launched this week, uh, including Raphael Honigstein's Steelcast on German football. And Caroline Barker and Adam Hurry's Football Clichés podcast discussing the language of football. That's it for today. Thank you very much, Charlie and James. Thank you, producer Tom. And we will be back next week picking the bones out of the Norwich and Southampton games and looking forward to the following weekend. 